All right, great. Well, nice to meet you. And it seemed a kind of an urgent situation. So if you want to just start off by reading your uh, email, we can take it from there. Hi, Stefan. This is the most difficult message I've ever had to write. But after being a listener of yours for four years, now I finally have to accept that there's both continuity and a cause to the endless failures that seem to shape my life thus far. I have an ACE score of seven, although I do believe that special consideration should be given to the context of the abuse. In my case, this would surely increase my score. Violence, incest, abandonment, neglect, torture, and betrayal are all major themes in my family history. Each time I listen to a free domain calling show, a light is shone onto either a suppressed or repressed memory of mine. And it becomes increasingly clear that I'm actively, perhaps subconsciously, refusing to, to succeed in life. Most importantly, I'm beginning to understand why no one has ever intervened to stop my self-destruction. And even more terrifying is that their existence depends on my destruction. I'm a British-born West African male in my early 30s. I am tall, handsome, intelligent, charismatic, athletic, and curious. But despite these gifts, I have nothing of value to show for my time on this earth. I have bounced around from one addiction to another, from recreational drug use to sugar binges. I suffer from insomnia, chronic overthinking, and crippling self-doubt. I've never loved or been loved. But most disturbing to me is that I have never been loving to myself. I've dropped out of university twice, college three times, and procrastination has been my only consistent friend. After many years of inaction, I'm now afraid to dream because each failure I add to my internal resume gradually erodes my sense of self-worth and efficacy. As a child, I would curse God for creating me and forcing me into existence. I thought it was a sick joke that he would make me live a life of suffering. I often wished I could snap my fingers and end my own life. I had no real friends. We were discouraged from socializing outside of the immediate family. It was school, home, and church. My earliest memories were of being beaten by my mother with the heel of her winter boots. Being abruptly sent to live with an old woman relative in West Africa and not seeing either my mother or father for months after that. All without any explanation at all. I have never had an intimate conversation with my mother. I have no memory of ever being hugged by her. I often wonder if she could mention two things that I enjoy doing. I have a memory of being woken up in the middle of the night by my mother and told to scrub my body in the shower with a soap from West Africa that had been preyed on and that would remove any evil curses. I could go on and on, Stefan. The true darkness of my family and childhood is buried deep. And even to think about it is to risk too much. 
the perpetrators and victims have families of their own now. And this is why I haven't contacted you before today. I feel as though I am trapped in a cult of secrecy and shame. I truly believe that the victims in my family are quietly and politely dying inside as we look at each other for permission to cry out. But of course, there will never be permission. I'm frozen in time, frozen by shame, frozen by fear, frozen. Help, please, Stefan. That is quite a tale, my brother, and I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry that this is the tale that you have to tell and that this is what you experienced. But I really do appreciate and applaud your courage in coming forward in, in such a way. It's a hell of a thing to ask for this kind of help, to ask for this kind of feedback, to open yourself up in this kind of way. And I I really admire it and respect your choice. So I hope that I'm sure we can do some great stuff in the conversation, but I just wanted to say that up front uh, to express my sorrow for your history and my admiration for this call. Thank you. Thank you. What the hell was going on in your house, man? Oh, my God. ACEF7, you said. I mean, you mentioned the brutality, the violence, the, the hitting, the soap from West Africa that cleanses bad spirits. Like, okay, so what, what what's the incest that was occurring? So, um, there's so much, Stefan, seriously. Um, okay. Um, I must have been about, I was less than six years old, for sure. And all I know is before six, <laughs> I lived with my mother and father and my younger sister. And something happened, I assume. And all I know is I'm in West Africa away from my mother and father. And I'm told, this is your grandmother. And I meet two children, six and seven years older than I am. So they're probably like 12, I guess, and 13. They're siblings. And I'm told that they're my half siblings. So children of my mother. Um, so I was uh, sexually abused by one of those children, um, my older brother. You mean your half-brother? Yes. And sexually abused in what way? Uh, my earliest memory, uh, I was ill. I, I can't remember why or how. And I was uh, sleeping in um, the special room. So, so in the in the house there was this room that was kind of reserved for I don't know for the, for the adults. I don't know. It had a really nice bed. Uh, we, we were never allowed like a, in like there. Like a guest kind room of kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And um, uh, and because I was ill. I got to sleep in the guest room, you know, in the special room with the nice bed and, you know, and, um, 
I have a memory of my older brother coming into the room and I was laying on my back and he climbed on top of me and he made me give him perform oral sex on him. Was there a sense of threat or of violence or like what would have happened, do you think, if you had not complied? I have no idea. Um, and how much older I was just, he than you? Six to seven years old, older. And uh, so at this time, when this happened, I was definitely above the age of five or six and definitely younger than nine or ten. Right, okay. So he was in the sort of early to mid-teens, like post-puberty, yeah, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, my yeah, my first like he was ripped to shreds. That's all I remember about him when I first met him, that he was just physically strong, ripped like he's like he's always been ripped to shreds. Like, <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and, and he's they were strangers to me. I've never met these kids before, um, and I was terrified. Uh, even before, I was just in a. A perpetual state of being terrified because I didn't know why I was there in that country. I didn't know what I did, if I did something wrong, what I did wrong. I didn't know why I was away from my mother. I don't know why my I'd never I'd never saw my dad or spoke to my dad. I, it was literally chaos in my yeah, mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. It's funny. Like I mean, when we're kids, just stuff happens, and then later on in life, we look back and say, "Okay, but why?" Why the hell did this stuff happen? How did this come about? What was the decision making? Now, do you know anything about this was your mother's son by another man, right? Do you know anything yes. about that other man? Okay, so this is where it gets even more complicated. So, my mother has six children. I am child number four. Uh, I had no knowledge of this until... I magically appeared in West Africa. Um, and the two children I met, six and seven years older than me, were from the same father. And then there was a firstborn daughter who uh, is from another father. So there's three fathers, three sets of kids, if you know what I mean. And the father of the ripped older yeah. kid was not your biological father right no, no okay and do you know anything about him um i've never met him he's deceased now what i do know is that um my two the two older siblings that i met um they were moved around as well so when my mother had them uh she's she separated from them and they were they stayed with their father in a household with a stepmother right and from what i know they were mistreated in that situation uh and i i don't i don't know anything all i know is like literal little comments and sly references to mistreatment and then i think they were kind of rescued by uh our grandmother and um, so that's the end of the connection between them and their father. Um, right. Yeah, then, I mean, my guess would be that the older boy, the ripped boy, 
who molested you or, or forced you to perform yeah. oral sex, that he himself had been raped by a male as a child, yeah. and this was the pattern that, unfortunately and, and brutally, he enacted on you. Yeah. Most likely his father. I mean, I don't know, obviously, for sure, but that'd be the first mm. place that I would I would look. Not that there's any point yeah. now, I guess you say he's dead, but... Yeah. <sighs> okay, so that's who, that's who your mom's choosing. Yeah. That's who your mom's choosing. Okay, so how long did this sexual abuse from the older boy go on for? I think uh, so. At some so before the age of ten, uh, sorry, uh, around the age of ten, we moved back to the UK. Uh, I moved. Sorry, all the kids, all the children, all six children now move. It's quite complicated, but I'm just going to keep it simple. So we then all of us, we all the family moves to the UK. So for me, it's returning to the UK. But for for my older siblings, it's the first time coming to the UK. Um, and there was still sexual abuse in the UK. Um, I think. Oh, so it, it went on for a couple of years in West Africa and then continued in the UK. Is yeah. that right? Yes. Um, and I think it probably stopped at the age of 12 or 11, that kind of age. Before and puberty. was it mostly the forced oral sex? Was there other forms of molestation that occurred? I, my own, that's the only memory of oral sex that I have. Um, and it wasn't a frequent or regular thing. Um, I think it was more kind of like an opportunistic kind of behavior. Oh, you mean like if nobody's home and, and yeah. get away with it, yeah. that kind of stuff? Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, I have a memory of uh, him ejaculating on me. Um, so we were sleeping in the same bed at night. And again, we happened to be separate from the rest of the family. And... Um, he just started rubbing himself on me. And again, I just didn't do anything. I didn't resist. Um, and then I didn't know what he, what actually happened, but now I know that he ejaculated on me. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I was just covered in some stuff. <laughs> and, um, and it was nighttime, it was dark. And, um, and then he wiped it off and then that was it. And then the last memory I have and this is, I think this is where, this is what really kind of messes with my mind is that I have this memory of actually seeking that intimacy. So I have a memory of, we had a bunk bed. This is in a different house. We had a bunk bed and I chose to lay on his bunk. And I just, and I, which I never did, I, I would never do that. I never did that before. And he found me on, on the, on his bunk. And how, how old, sorry, how old were you then? I think I was probably like, uh, like 11 or 12. That's, this is my last memory of us ever having any sort of sexual interaction. Right. So I was probably about 11 or 12. And then, um, he, uh, then he climbed on top of the bunk and then, he tried to kiss me and then I moved. Um, and then he was 
stroking me and I felt myself get aroused. Um, but then I stopped and I just kind of walked out, uh, left the room. Um, and I don't know why I did that. And I don't know why I stopped it. Um, but I did. Well, I, I mean, I can imagine. Go ahead. Was this your first memory of sexual arousal? Yes. Right. So you, you probably didn't want to have the imprinting of incest as your first real memory of sexual arousal or orgasm. Yeah. You know, that, that stuff tends to imprint pretty, pretty deep into our mind as the sexual activity we tend to get more used to or maybe even pursue in the future. So you were probably just trying to ward off that association, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, yeah. Now, in, in, in any of this time, my friend, in any of this time, was there any possibility or opportunity to tell anyone to say, look, this creepy stuff is going on, or I don't like this, or anyone to communicate with about this? I've asked myself that question. Why never Oh, no, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't have done. I don't know, but I'm just curious. Like, did it, I mean, it must have crossed your mind, but was there anyone that you had any close relationship to that could have helped? You know, Stefan, I, I've thought about my, my childhood a lot since, since uh, I found your work. Um, I actually found your work because I researched um, race and IQ. <laughs> um, and then I was like, and then you were the only person speaking frankly about it. And oh, yeah, right. it, changed, it changed my whole world. Um, but anyway, um, when I think about my childhood, it, it's literally, I feel like I was a zombie. I feel like. Like you weren't there, I right? Was, like you were just yeah, surviving. Like I wasn't you were, there, you were yeah. eating, you were sleeping, you were dodging, yeah. you were maybe a bit of playing, but yeah, there's like there's no person there, right? I mean, a lot of us who've gone through these kinds of childhoods have that, you know, depersonalization, like we're kind of like a robot and, and we know there's yeah. no real there's no room for us in our own lives. Yeah. There's no free will. There was no preferences. There was no preferences I, I like those yeah you, you well, no, no preferences you can really act on right yeah and and the other thing too of course is that when you're treated in this kind of way i mean you, you really are treated as if you're not there you, you're just an object to to be used with no preferences or thoughts or feelings of your own. And the other thing that happens as well, of course, so I don't want to tell you your own experience, but I think this is pretty common. And, and of course, tell me if it doesn't apply to you, but you know, we, we kind of, you know, when something shocking or appalling happens to us, you know, in this case, the molestation, it could be uh, the beatings or whatever, when, when something really appalling happens to us and it could be at school or anything, right? We are quite desperate in a way to, to, to know if anybody notices. Does anyone notice that we're not as happy? Does anyone notice that we are moody? Does anyone notice that we're quiet? Does anyone notice or care, hopefully both, notice and care, does anyone notice that we're unhappy? And, and that's really the big question. We, we tell if someone knows we're unhappy and asks persistently, right? Because that's the only way we know if they can be trusted, right? Yeah. 
Because if we tell and someone is untrustworthy, then they'll accuse us of lying. They will go to the molester and they will say, can you believe what this boy told, said about you? And then you're in shit, right? Like you're in heavy shit. Yeah. Right? I mean, you, you, you could get beaten or even killed at this point, right? For spreading vicious rumors about a noble boy or whatever, right? And so it's really, really dangerous to confess, to, to tell, to reveal what's happening to you. And, the, and the, the way that we try and figure it out is, well, does anyone even notice that I'm quiet or not? Does anybody notice that I'm not there? Does anybody notice that I'm not present in my own life, in, in other people's lives? And if they don't notice that, well, we just shut up. Of course we do, right? I mean, if, if you witness a crime from like the mafia or whatever, right? I don't know what the West African equivalent would be, but if you witness a crime from organized crime, crime gang, um, if the police is, is, is the brother of the criminal, if the policeman is the brother of the criminal, you're not likely to go tell the policeman, right? Because you're just going to get in more trouble. The policeman's then going to go to his brother and said, hey, do you know who's ratting on you? You know, and stitches get, and snitches get stitches and end up in ditches, right? So yeah. you probably have the radar out, right? The radar of, okay, is there anyone here I can tell? And the only person you could possibly tell would be somebody who you were close to who would notice that you were different after the molestation than before. And since it doesn't sound like anybody even noticed how on earth could you tell without yeah. almost certainly ending up in a much worse situation? I mean, I know it's hard to imagine worse than this, but there's a lot worse than this, right? Yeah. Again, sorry, I don't mean to tell you your experience, but if that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. Okay, so how was your emotional state, I guess, after you came back to the UK? with this predatory ripped molester in the vicinity or around, in the house, right? In the same house. How was your mood? How was your, how were your thoughts in that situation? Oh, it's hard to answer that question, Stefan, because there was so much going on in the household. Um, there's six kids uh, were being raised by a single mother at this point. Uh, I still don't know why my father is not in my life. <laughs> my last memory of him being in my life is at the age of five. Um, um, there's the there's the conflict amongst us siblings because. There's the, you know, there's the three groups of kids. There's the first child, there's the next two children, and then the next three children. And I'm the fourth child. So I'm the eldest of the last set of kids. So there's this conflict of, oh, you guys are the British kids. You get, you get treated differently. Um, there's obviously the conflict between all the kids and our mother because she's not a loving human being. <laughs> Um, then there's the cultural differences between all of us and the new school that we go to and we get bullied and abused in that school. Who, and, who, uh, who bullies and abuses you? Uh, the kids in the school. 
Oh, no, no, I understand that. But, I mean, if, if we're going to sort of bring the ethnicity or the race or anything into it, is it white kids who are bullying you, Asian yes, kids, black kids? Yes. Uh, so, at this, so, uh, yeah. So, at this point, we are going to a school that is in the suburbs. So, uh, I don't want to be too specific. In the suburbs. So, it's a non-diverse area. You Presumably, mean like a majority white area? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. okay. So presumably because my mother wanted us to go to a better school. Um, so we have to travel about an hour to get to school. And there are many schools in between where we live and that particular school. So, and now I know that that it was a, that our school was a better school than the alternatives. Um, it was a Church of England school, which tend to be, faith schools tend to be better in the UK than the regular schools. Well, you'll get a couple of moral values out of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, not only was I was I a black kid, I was an African black kid with an African accent. So, uh, so let me break it down. So, there's being black, which is a source of prejudice. There's being African, which means you're one of the Oxfam kids, right? Oh, the adverts yeah, yeah. that come on, on TV with the flies around your face, and you know you. You've seen those extended right? bellies and yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you have the African accent, and you don't have any of any cultural awareness, so you don't know the jokes, you don't understand the slang. Um, so the Caribbean kids want to distance themselves from you because they're like, we're not African like them. You mean the black Caribbean kids, right? Yes, the black Caribbean right. kids. Yes. Right, we're we're yes. black, but we're not West African black. That's like lowest yes. packing order, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, so I, was, I, so yeah, there was no source of, there was no comfort. There was no community at school. Um, yeah. Right. Well, I, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really sorry for all of that stupid tribalism as well. I mean, my God. I mean, you're just trying to, just trying to survive in a world you didn't choose to be in, in an environment you didn't choose to be in. Did you, I mean, when you left West Africa and went back to the UK, did, how did you feel about that? Was it like a plus minus that you barely remembered at that point? Oh, um, I was ecstatic. I remember when I found out that we were moving back to the UK. Um, I was, I was like, really? Like, it was literally like, like a miracle. Why it is that? Like Listen, man, miracle. don't you understand that England has a bad climate? I mean, it's much warmer and nicer and sunnier <laughs> in West Africa. What are you crazy? No, seriously. Why? Why, why did you want? I mean, obviously, I mean, the um, violence, the molestation, and so on. But what was so off-putting about about West Africa that you were just kind of desperate to get back to the UK? So I, I don't know what it's like now, um, but back then, um, so we, I, I would say, we were middle class in Africa, um, which means that we could afford to go to a private school where you have to pay for your uniform and pay school fees and all that kind of stuff. Um, but even when you're middle class, um, the infrastructure in, in, in that part of Africa or the world um, is really poor. So there was constant electrical failures, uh, uh, 
cockroaches, rats, um, lizards everywhere. Like, you know. Nah, the lizards are cool, man. I, I got to just, I mean, listen, the roaches, I mean, you and I could probably shudder together in a black box for a while about roaches because, you know, if you grow up poor, man, roaches, like, they're the only nukem from orbit species that I can think of on the planet. I hate those creatures. I'd literally rather have spiders than roaches. Roaches are the most vile and disgusting things to have in your environment. And I remember in our apartment growing up, I mean, there were there were roaches that would crawl around inside the clocks inside the stove. Like, you know, you got an oven, right? And there's little clocks. You'd see roaches running around in there. Oh, it was horrible. Absolutely. I just, oh, I couldn't stand it. We'd just regularly get the fumigators coming in and and uh, I mean, so and then the roaches in West Africa could like totally beat the shit out of the roaches from my childhood because they're pretty, yeah, they're huge, pretty big, yeah. right? Like surfboards yeah. with legs, right? And uh, yeah, ugh, yeah, and the rats I've never dealt with. Mice a little bit here and there, but yeah, the roaches, mm. oh man, they are just they are just stomach turning. That's like, yeah, that, that's like you know, for anyone who don't don't ever torture me, but that's my room one hundred and one. That's like the worst thing in the world. It's like the, <laughs> the bag of roaches over the head. It's like they're just vile. I mean, you hear these stories of like women who, I don't know, they fall asleep at some place in New York and they wake up with this incredible noise in their ear because the roach has crawled into their ear and it's an antennae wow. is waving on their ear hairs and something. It's like, oh my God, just behead me. Please just solve the problem that way. So, <laughs> ugh. Anyway, I don't remember them so much from the UK, but I certainly remember them in, in Toronto and Canada. But anyway, that's sort of neither here nor there. So I feel you about the roaches, man. That's, that's, that's rough stuff. Yeah. Because, I mean, especially in a warm climate, I mean, you can't really do much about it uh, at all. Yeah. yeah. All right. Sorry, but um, I'm supposed I, to be talking I, I about think... my trauma here. Let's get back no, no, to you. No, it's okay. I, your life. Uh, I, pre I really appreciate you, you know, lightening the conversation every now and then. Oh, yeah. um, um, I think it's a good question. Why? Do... Now, when I reflect on it, uh, back then, I just thought, oh, I'm going back to the UK. I just felt like it was a miracle now i realize that in contrast to my experience in nigeria the uk was a miracle as far as my memories of it because i remember my memories were oh my mom and dad are together we live in a household together um i'm safe oh you mean uh, your memories of the uk before you went yeah. to west africa okay yeah yes. yeah okay that makes exactly. sense. exactly so it's like oh i'm going back to my memories of the uk <laughs> you know um but obviously that wasn't the case because Everyone else is coming with me. Right. And and your biological dad was long out of the picture, right? Yes. Right. What did your mom live on? I mean, that's a lot of kids, man. I mean, how, how did she how did she pay for all this stuff? Um in the UK or um, in... yeah, well, I guess both places, yeah. Um, so in the UK, the exchange rate is quite extreme <laughs> um in west africa um i think it was like my memory is like 200 to one kind of thing right. um yeah so uh so like i said even though she was broke in the uk she was middle class in africa um did she, but did she work i mean no matter how oh, yeah, broke she, or yeah, she did, sorry she, um, she did um don't she, tell me her actual job but what area did she work in uh, for the government. Like oh. in, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I figure, you know, women with voodoo soap for their demon haunted kids, not necessarily a scientist. Um, no, if that's the level no. of superstition that we're dealing with, right? 
Yeah. 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 You know, it's so crazy because every time I think about my childhood and I think about how I perceived my mother, she was like all powerful. And now when I think about her now, knowing everything I know, I just can't believe that she commanded that level of respect from me. I just can't believe she was in control of six human beings. Right. So help me, I mean, help me understand the, the difference looking up and looking down. You know, growing up, I, like, so, I just, all I remember is just, it's hard for me to give you specifics. It, it was more like an atmosphere of chaos. Like, so this is, so now I'm talking about post-Africa, so we're now in the UK, yeah. going to secondary school. There was just this atmosphere of chaos, of just, you never knew what was going to happen next. You Just explosions of emotion, just being confused all the time. What's your mom like? Um, I don't know. It's, a, it's an analogy for for young for older people than you, but like a pinball, a bing bing bing, sort of just bouncing off various situations and circumstances, uh, and having these like strong emotional reactions depending on the moment. Yes. Right. Again, again, I didn't. Obviously, I, I, uh, well, I say obviously. Maybe it's not obvious, but I. Okay, I think I think for me, what was what's most hurtful is that I was lied to my whole life. Like now, I know that my mom suffers from extreme anxiety, hmm. like crippling anxiety. But of course, I I wasn't told that when I was a kid. So well, that's one possibility. Okay, that's one possibility that she suffers from extreme anxiety. I I would hazard another one. Uh, she's guilty of sin. But managing her own conscience, managing how badly she treated her children, managing how she raised them without a father figure in their life, managing how her youngest, oh sorry, the oldest of the youngest got molested for what, close to half a decade? I mean, I've never mistreated my daughter one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of that. There's still stuff I feel a little bad about. And I can't even imagine what that would do to your mom's brain to have her children in these kinds of situations where she's basically delivering them up to molesters and failing to protect them. I mean, yeah, maybe there's this anxiety, but anxiety is like this morally neutral thing that she's like a victim. Oh, I just have a lot of anxiety. You know, it's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, or maybe you were an unbelievably neglectful and abusive mother whose children suffered an adverse childhood experience score of seven plus. And maybe, you know, the Christians are right about the conscience. 
Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's a really, really, really bad conscience for very good reason. Maybe that's the price you pay when you fuck up your parenting that badly. And this wouldn't be something she'd pay when you became an adult. This would be something she'd pay the whole time through. Every day, another dollar. Every day, another dollar. Yeah. I mean, my mother, I mean, again, I'm not trying to confuse this together in, in one sort of big ebony and ivory frappe here, but you know, my mother, uh, oh, I have all these medical issues. I have chronic fatigue syndrome. I have Epstein-Barr virus. Like, yeah, maybe. Maybe you've just got a really bad conscience. And you don't want to deal with that, so you're pretending it's medical. Or maybe she's pretending it's anxiety. I don't know if people who live life well, you know, morally, protect their kids and stay married to the father or mother of their kids. And I don't know that they end up with a huge amount of anxiety. I mean, that's like life anxiety and world anxiety and what the hell's happening to our civilization anxiety. But I don't know about the parenting anxiety of them. I mean, I think if you live a reasonably decent life that way, and, you know, if you have an adverse childhood experience of seven, and the adverse childhood experience score, you know, people can go and look this up, doesn't even count a lot of the stuff that, that nobody would really consider abuse, but which I would consider destructive to children. You know, it doesn't really include spanking. It doesn't include timeouts. It doesn't include yelled, raised voices very much. It doesn't, right? I mean, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, you had it really rough. And it, your mother had one job. She had one job, which was to keep you safe, right? That's the job that's necessary for everything else to happen. If you don't, I mean, if, if you don't keep your kids safe, I don't care what else you do. Like, there's nothing, you can't make up for that. You know, it's, it's like saying, well, yeah, I do uh, smoke, crack, shoot up heroin, but I also do sit-ups. It's like, no, no, <laughs> the sit-ups aren't going to undo the smoking crack and taking heroin. And it's the yeah. same thing. If you don't even keep your kids safe, if you don't have the kind of relationship where they can come to you and say, you know, something weird happened, like something's not right. I don't feel good. I don't like this. I mean, if you screw up your parenting that badly, and you keep having kids. The suffering that your mother's going through. I mean, what's because that's, I guess, my question, which I'm sort of slowly circling around here. The question is, okay, what's your relationship to your mother's anxiety or your mother's suffering? If your mother suffers, you say you've got anxiety and all that. What's your relationship to that suffering? What do you think of it? Uh, I... I... I don't have any emotional attachment to my mother. Hey, um, that's the first thing you've told me. <laughs> that really just ain't true, man. <laughs> Come on. I haven't seen my mother in a quarter century. I still have an emotional attachment to her. I uh, So, the reason why I say that, I'm not saying it's true <laughs> because I have an explanation, <laughs> but uh, the reason why I say that is because I, I remember in my late teens, um, realizing that I didn't actually care if I saw my mother or not. 
um, it made no difference to my life. I realized that. I think I was probably about 17. But that also uh, is not true. Yeah. I mean, I think that you may have fled to indifference. And the reason I want to pause on this thing is that the indifference can be really dangerous. You know, like the teenagers, like, I just don't care. It's like, well, of course you do, right? But you just, you're saying you don't because you want to desperately flee from misery to indifference. In the same way that somebody in pain, they just want a painkiller. They don't want to hide. They just want the pain to go away. They want to numb themselves, right? And I'm just a bit concerned because, you know, you, you feel that your emotions are not helping you that much in your life, right? You have trouble with consistency and follow through and finishing uni or whatever it is, right? So if you go to the place of indifference, you get a relief from pain in the moment. But it kind of costs you your future, I think. Because you lose your feelings, you lose your passions, you lose your commitment, you lose your dedication, you lose your enthusiasm, all that stuff too. Like, you know, you can't just, uh, you know, all, all of the switches in our hearts are like up and down at the same time, right? We can't just say, well, I don't care about my mother, but I do care about my life and, and my ambitions and my future and, and all, all of that. I mean, there's just one big dial, right? And if you slammed that dial down to zero to just quiet the noise... It could be one of the reasons why you're feeling a bit adrift, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. So I, what is your relationship? Well, so tell me if, if you say your mother's got anxiety or other things. How, how's she doing as far as you know at the moment? Uh, she hasn't worked in, I think, like two decades. Um, Living on? Uh, government support. Excellent. Excellent, yeah. excellent. I'm sure there'll be a million British taxpayers sending up a ragged cheer at the moment. All right. Yeah. And is 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 it the anxiety that that has driven her from the workforce, so to speak? I think so. So, um, so when I was 15, my mother kicked my three older siblings out of the house. There was some huge argument, and I, I don't know over what, um, but she literally kicked them out of the house. They had to go to the government to get emergency shelter. Um, and so it was just myself and my two younger sisters living with my mother for a short period of time. And I was taking my um, GCSEs. It's, it's basically the exams you take at age 16. It's the end of secondary school in the UK. Age 16, you take your GCSEs, and then you right. decide what you want to do for two years before you go to university. So these are like huge exams, right? They define the rest of your life in a way. Um, and I remember her coming up to me and I was sitting in, in, the, in the kitchen and she came up to me and she said, I'm going to be moving back to Nigeria and I'm taking your two younger sisters. Do you want to come with me? That, and of, what? of course I said, no. Wait, this just came out of nowhere? <laughs> yes. Um, what kind of time frame did you have? It's like, is there a cab outside to, to go to the airport? Like, <laughs> what kind of time frame did you have to make this kind of decision? Uh, well, I made the decision instantaneously, <laughs> but God, uh, no, right? for, obvi for obvious reasons. Um, 
And you were, what, 15? 16, you said, yeah, right? Yeah, 15, 15. 15? Yes. Jeez. Jeez, so she's just going to leave you in the house at the age of 15? Um, so so all the siblings are gone, so, right? Yeah, they've moved. They've moved. They've all well, they moved out, out right? together. Yeah, they were kicked out. To, um, they found this. They were given this flat kind of a part, like a, it's called a masonette. I don't know if you know what that is, but no. it's like a flat, but it's like a two-story flat. Okay. Uh, it's like a house on top of a house. Okay. It's yeah, weird. yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Um. So, uh, so they, so they've been, they've been given that property to live in, um, which was obviously heavily subsidized. Um, I think they were paying like ten percent of the rent or something. Um. And. Uh, so my cho- so the choice was I could either go back, go back to Nigeria with my mother and my two younger sisters, or move in with my three older siblings. One of and whom so ch- was the molester. Yeah. Yes. Oh man, I'm so sorry. Ah, oh, that's hideous. And do you know why she suddenly wanted to move, or was it even that sudden? Um, I have no idea. But now I think it's because of a man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Single mothers abandoning their kids to go chase men is a story as old as single motherhood, sadly. Yeah. And um, so that happened. Uh, they moved away. She's uh, by this time she uh, she had a mortgage. She owned the house we were living in, and she had she was paying a mortgage. So. She had some a lump sum of money that she took with her when she sold the property. Um, right. Yeah. I also think that she did some sort of financial scam because one day we came back from school and the house was flooded. And, oh, um, trying to get some insurance money? Yeah, I think so. Um, oh. The house was flooded. And we couldn't go back into the house and we were staying in the hotel, the Marriott Hotel for like two months. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, and again, like notice there's no dialogue. <laughs> there's no back and forth. There's no questions. There's no explanations there's... for any of your childhood. No, right? no, no. Just yeah, it's like when you happening. got a, you got a, we're like archaeologists in our own history. We go like, well, there's a little scrap of writing over here, and there's a little statue there, and over here is a little carving. It's like, how am I supposed to figure out what the hell happened with so few clues, right? And then I, my childhood, like, I was just yeeted all over the place. Nobody ever told me what the hell was going on or why. I kind of figured or puzzled some of it out sometimes years or decades later, but man, you got to read some serious tea leaves to try and figure out the story of this kind of chaos, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so what um, happened? Did she go? Yeah, so she went. Um and uh it's funny that you said it's funny you talk about the indifference because I remember I was probably about sixteen or seventeen. And Wait, so uh, did you go and live with the older kids? Yeah, I did. Yes, yeah. I did, yeah. And I but did. your 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 older half brother left you alone at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think so by now he he has access to women. So um Oh right. So he's like the emergency yeah. prison gay guy, right? Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and 
during that period of time where I'm living in that household with, with my older siblings, I think it was probably about from the age of 15 to 19, so about three, four years, um, or 16 to, you know, yeah, about three, four years. Uh, he is now addicted to uh, marijuana. Like well, he's, he's not got a working. bad conscience too, right? Yeah, I guess so. You guess he's so. not working. You think you get to molest kids and not end up with a bad conscience? No, I, I, no. I just mean that I, I think there's probably other reasons. Up there, more than there are more reasons why he could have been addicted as well. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, and and sorry, the the reason I'm pausing on this stuff when talking about the conscience, yeah, is that like some someone someone has to suffer for your bad childhood. Now, the more that you accept or realize that other people are suffering for your bad childhood, the less you'll have to suffer yourself. Someone's got to carry this weight, unbelievably shitty and abusive things were done to you. Are you uh, a religious man? No. Okay. So you don't even get, you know, God's hammer fist is going to put these people into the lake of everlasting fire, which is a way no. of unburdening yourself from the suffering of your childhood. And so for me, at least, and I, I you know, we're both people. I think we both basically work the same way, right? So for me, if you, or if, as I began to really understand that the people who caused me to suffer are themselves suffering. Because first they look like they're doing well, right? Because they're all, oh, they're older than you. They get ahead quicker. They they seem to be doing more. They they have all of the confidence that comes from not dealing with your childhood, right? It, it looks pretty cool when you're young, right? Like I mean, and and then you begin to suspect, you begin to suspect that uh, they're not as happy as they claim to be, and then you start to get little confirmations of just how miserable their lives really are. And then as you begin to accumulate your understanding more and more of your mother, in this case, your older half-brother and, and others, and you begin to realize that hell is not the afterlife. Hell is the bad conscience in the here and now. And you also begin to realize over time it's not an argument, I know, but I'll just tell you my experience. I began to realize over time that the punishment that the conscience devises for those who do wrong, particularly those who do wrong to children, that the punishment that the, con that the conscience designs for those who harm others is worse even than their victims would want. Like, you have a lot to re-angry about with regards to your mother, with regards to your absent father, with regards to your creepy as hell, molesting older half-brother and so on. But I'm telling you, man, the suffering that they both do experience and will experience over the course of their life, it's almost like I don't care how angry you are, the suffering that they go through is worse than anything you could even wish to inflict upon them. And if you accept that, they say virtue is its own reward, well, vice is its own punishment. Evil is its own punishment. So that's why I'm sort of probing some of the suffering on the part of your 
mother and your half-brother and so on. That's why I'm saying, addicted to marijuana, yeah, we've got a bad conscience. Mother's anxious, no, she's got a bad conscience. But the suffering comes out of the evil that they've done. And, and, and it can't be undone now. It can't be undone. You know, like if, if my mother saws off her own leg, I can't give her a new one. <laughs> I can't have it grow back. I can't give her mine, right? It's just, just missing a leg. And when people harm children to the extent that these two particular, and your mother and your half-brother, if you harm children to that degree, you can't regrow. Like, you can't fix it. They're now entombed. They are in a prison cell of their own misery. And there is no escape. There is no escape because there's no redemption. There is no redemption because it can't be undone. It can't, it can't be undone. You know, you're over at someone's house, you, you knock over a, a vase, you break the vase, you can buy them a new vase, right? Yeah. It can be repaired, assuming that it's not, I don't know, somebody's cremated remains or something, it's not an urn. But for the most part, you can make, make things good, right? You can make things good. But, I mean, a, a, a wrecked childhood cannot be made whole. It cannot be undone. Because there's nothing that you would accept to make up for that childhood. Somebody said, hey, I'll give you a million dollars. It's like, no, I'll take a childhood of, like, not that. I don't care how much money you've got. It's not worth it, right? Because you're not for sale that way, right? So, I think if, if you accept that the punishment of God and the idea of hell, the uneasy conscience, the self-punishment of the immoral, that that happens regardless of anyone's intention, regardless of anyone's ideas, regardless of anyone's preferences, and even against the wishes of the victims. My mother is suffering more than I would ever want her to suffer. I'll say it straight, man, and it's a heartbreak. My mother is suffering far more than I would ever want her to suffer for justice, as I would conceive of it. My childhood was 15 years you know, since she first had her breakdown around the in her late 30s, early 40s, it's now 45 years, right? So her punishment, her sentence is a kind of living hell that's gone on three times longer than my entire childhood. You know, I, my, while my mother was a criminal in terms of her physical abuse and violence, and neglect to some degree. A just legal system would not put her in a situation of torture for 45 years. She would not get a life sentence. And she shouldn't get a life sentence. She's not a murderer, right? Might have come close <laughs> once or twice, but she's not a murderer. And she's not a rapist. Not a molester. And so, like, a just legal system, even if it had taken into account all of her crimes, would give her maybe five years in jail, maybe, and without torture, obviously, right, without torture, <laughs> and now she's been close to a half century of torture, misery, isolation, solitude, madness, paranoia, sleeping with a giant bread knife under her pillow, because she's that scared of the world, right? God knows what they've put her on over the years, right? So, the suffering 
of the wrongdoers. This is one of the reasons we don't do wrong. It's, I mean, we like virtue, but also, I mean, the punishment. There's no, there's no parole. Maybe the parole could be, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I've been thinking about it, and I did you wrong, and I shouldn't have acted the way that I did, and I'm, I'm so sorry, and what can we do to make it better? Here's my thoughts. Here's my suggestions. Here's what I've got going on. I will relieve you of the need for self-knowledge by telling you everything there is to know about your childhood in as honest and frank a manner as possible so that there are no mysteries for you to stumble over in the dark. But that doesn't come. Well, I assume it hasn't come from your mom. I assume it won't come from your mom. It certainly didn't come from my mom. It will not come from my mom in the few years that she may have left. But the suffering, if the other, if you recognize how much those who've harmed you are suffering, it eases your burden, not because it's like, ah, I love the fact that they're suffering. Don't get me wrong. Occasionally it's okay that they're suffering in my heart and mind, but it's because if they suffer, then you don't have to blame yourself as much. If they suffer, you don't have to suffer as much. If they suffer, you were not in the wrong. And if you're not in the wrong, that lifts your burden, that alleviates your suffering, if that makes any sense. Does she suffer? I mean... You know something about her life since you were fifteen? Does she suffer? Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> she definitely does. I yeah, feel... she never found the love she wanted, right? She never found that yeah. safe harbor, that port in the storm, the man to take care of her, and right? She never, never found that, right? Yeah, probably got used up a whole lot along the way, though, by a bunch of really creepy bad people, right? Yeah, your elder half brother, Mister Molester. How's yeah. his life turned in? Uh, that's an interest. That's an interesting one because um, on the surface he seems okay. So he overcame his addiction um, to cannabis, and from the help of uh, someone from a church that he goes to um and then he got married at a appropriate age like younger than 30 um he has three kids and he's still married um career wise he's never been in kind of educated like you know He's not really a intellectual, let's put it that way. Um, and so he he's working kind of like a you know average working class job, and he has to work like crazy hours in order to pay his mortgage and provide a good standard of living for his family. So I guess he's suffering in that respect. I mean, he doesn't enjoy his work. Um, he doesn't have a particular career. He's just moved from, oh, this job is paying no, more money. Oh, yeah. 
Well, he's not loved. Do you know how I know that? How do you know? I do want to know how you know that. I know I that exactly. <laughs> I know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. He is yeah. not loved. In fact, he's probably quite despised. And the reason I say that is that if I was working 70 hours a week or whatever, right? Do you know what my wife would say? You're working too much. I miss you. Yeah. Stop working so hard. I, I want to spend time with you. I love you. I want to go out for dinner or, or stay in for dinner if we can't afford it. I want to sit on a couch and hold your hand and talk about life. A jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and you. That's all I need, right? But his wife, now, if he were to say, well, no, but we wouldn't be able to afford whatever, right? We wouldn't be able to afford this bigger house, right? Yeah. What would she say if she left him? I'd rather be with you than have a bigger house yeah. and be alone. Let's move. I don't want yeah. a big house without you in it. Yeah. I want a small house with you in it. Yeah. So she sends him off to work because she doesn't like him. And he goes to work because he doesn't like his wife and also probably to stay away from his children because of his yeah. um, his pedophile tendencies. Yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, to feel unloved. And, and then he's, he's going to start to feel resentful if he doesn't already, right? He's going to start to feel like, oh, my God, all I do is work and I, you know, I don't get any gratitude. I don't get any any affection. I'm just a workhorse. I'm like a piece of livestock to them. All of that resentment, right? And then with that resentment, you know, he has an affair. His wife has an affair. They get a divorce. His life explodes. Goes to family court. And then he's still working his hard, but he never gets to see anyone. Stefan? Is it, is it wrong that listening to what you're saying is making me feel better? Well, no, this is, this is exactly what I was saying, that if you recognize the suffering of other people who've done evil, it takes the burden from you. Because that's what they did. They, they, like, this guy got his twisted, perverse, revolting sexual gratification from the oral rape of a little boy, i.e. you, right? So he made himself yeah. feel better by making you feel worse. You recognize that suffering. It just, yes, it lifts a burden. Look, you and I are in on the secret. The big, dark, gruesome secret. And the big secret is this. Oh, it's the big secret question, the secret question. And the big secret question, which we obsess over, and rightly so, it's an important question. The big secret question is this. Does being good suck? Yeah. Does being virtuous suck? Or does being good just mean that you're a sucker? You can take an advantage of. People walk all over you. They deplatform you. They insult you. They bully you. They fire you. They will appease the table-thumping assholes of the world, but the nice, good, sensitive, intelligent people we just get plowed under, like last week's, like last year's mulch. Does being good totally suck? Is it a fool's game? 
Is it a way in which the sensitive and the intelligent beat themselves up so that the evil can rule the world unopposed? Is virtue a soft, syrupy spider trap that we crawl into so that we feel better about ourselves in the moment while letting the world get taken over by the monsters and the predators? Does being good suck? Does, is being good cowardly? Because we see all the bad people in the world going out and taking what they want and getting their satisfaction and achieving their goals and getting resources and getting the hot girls and getting the big paycheck. No, I mean, look, it's the question of you, you get up, you go to work, you work your 40 hours, you make your couple of hundred quid and uh, meanwhile there are assholes over there in the central banking palace just printing all the money they want on your back, on your productivity on your dime all the guys who, who get up and go to work and provide for their families are looking at the guys who just go bang everything with a hole that drops a pencil wandering off, having fun having a blast living the party lifestyle, and we're getting up at 7 in the morning to go to work. Is being good a fool's game? Is it like a, a con? Hey, man, if I can if I can get you to believe that you, you should be good, if I can get you to believe that you should be virtuous, say the evildoers, man, you're no threat to me. You're just going to sit there and bite your fingernails and stare into the mirror and trying to figure out how good you are and if you're good in the right way and uh, are you like you'll just be self-obsessed with goodness and you'll just drift aside like morning fog under a hot sun and we can then rule the world i'm sure that's crossed your mind in one form or another from time to time yes of course yes. of course me i'm going to tell the truth about race and iq because <laughs> honesty is is a virtue right <laughs> right, of course, right? And the people who don't talk about these things, the people who don't talk about, you know, the information that can help the races get along better and, and have more understanding and sympathy with each other, well, the people who don't talk about that, they still have their shows, they still have their sponsors, they still have their income, they still have their views, they still, right? So telling the truth, oh, what an idiot <laughs> I was to tell the truth. Don't we have that feeling from time to time? Why the hell didn't I just shut up? It's tempting, isn't it? No, see, I should have just said, I was talking about race and NyQuil. Not race and IQ. It was race and NyQuil. <laughs> you know that sometimes different races, when they take cold medication, have different response. Race and NyQuil. <laughs> I don't know what you all heard. <laughs> I'm not crazy. <laughs> uh, thou shalt not bail false witness, but thou shalt take your fist to the nads every time <laughs> thou obeys this commandment. <laughs> but if you get that they suffer, and they do, and they do. And they do. It does make you feel better. And it's not sadistic. It's not like, 
oh, I take deep existential pleasure in other people's suffering. No, that's them, right? They, they, they took that pleasure, right? But it's like the, the moral machinery of the mind is working. And it means then that your suffering had some value, if you talk about it. And the suffering that the, the value that your suffering can have is the people who've wronged you when you talk openly about their misery, then they become a warning sign for other people. The operations of the conscience are beyond the conscious mind. Can't be changed, can't be fixed. I, if I had the key to my mother's prison, if I had that key, somebody handed me this key and said, you can go and let your mom out. I would, with all due respect, hang the, hang the hell out of this conversation and go and let her out. And I'd say, 45 years, man, that's too long. I didn't have the key, man. I, I'd, let, I'd let her out. I'd let her out. I, I'd want her to be happy for the last couple of years of her life. I really would. Genuinely and completely and totally would. If I had the key, I would let her out. But here's the thing, man. I don't have the key. I can't let her out. I didn't Maybe. put her in. And I say, oh, but you could go and forgive her. But I don't think that lying is a virtue. And I would forgive her if she asked. If she said, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? I would say, you know what? Of course I do. I have a great life. It's 40 years ago now. Go out, breathe the fresh air. Here's a trip to the Mediterranean. Go drink up the sunshine. Go walk on the water. I would want to let her out. I would, but I can't. If she wanted out, she could ask and I would let her out. That's the only way that I get the key. only way I get the key is if she asks. I could go and pretend that she said something or that she was sorry or that, right? But all that would happen, see, if I, if I went to forgive her, and I hope I'm not just talking about myself because you have these, I mean, we all have these questions. We have these kinds of parents, right? If I were to go and forgive her, do you know what she would say? Forgive me for what? Forgive me for you not talking to me for 20 years. Forgive. You forgive me because I was made sick by the doctors and fell apart and you just let me fall. She would abuse me if I went to forgive her. And that would make her more unhappy. Staying away is really the only chance I have to minimize her unhappiness because I don't provoke her into bad actions. Now, all of this is to say, you know, you said I'm indifferent to my mother. I don't think you can be, and I don't think you are deep down. I mean, I'm not saying you're lying to me, right? I mean, I, I didn't say you were lying to me. I just said this is what I don't believe is true. I don't think it's the truth. We always care about our mothers. I don't like that my mother suffers this much. I think that the operations of the conscience is 
in a sense, harsher than hell itself. Because hell is theoretical. Hell is a possibility. The suffering my mother has gone through for the last 45 years is very real and very vivid. And it's very powerful. And it's not later. It's not maybe. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's a fact. So when you say you feel better, how could he be loved when he carries this unbelievably brutal secret that he forced a child into oral rape for half a decade? Right? You don't have any big dark secrets, do you? I mean, your unhappiness, for sure, but it's not like, here's the pile of homeless people I buried in my backyard, right? I mean, you don't, right? No. So you don't know there's, what it's I, like. Sorry, there's, there's only, no, I was, I was going to say, uh, maybe it's time for me to mention something that I think I need to say in order to hear what you have to say. Go for it. So... It would be bad enough if I was the only one impacted by what we're talking about so far. So I think I was about uh, what age was I? Maybe around 14 I think. And I remember my mum physically attacking my older brother. You know, like, you know, like you're trying to kill someone kind of thing, you know, like, you know, grabbing anything, trying to smash it on them and all that kind of stuff. And this is after um, they'd been kicked out of the house, the household. Right. And we were in the property that they were living in, in the in the house, in the house, the new house Just like that they were top living house in. House thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Masonette is the word, right? Yeah, yeah. Masonette, yes. And um, so I just know that my mum was violently attacking him, and he was cr- crying and apologizing and saying, "I'm sorry, mummy. I'm sorry, mummy. I'm sorry." And again, there's no conversations in my family, no discussions, no explanations. But yeah, what I understood, explosions, right? Yeah, exactly. Then what I understood is that apparently he had messed around with my younger sister. Oh God. But this is me just piecing things together. There was no verbal affirmation, I mean, confirmation. Um, and and this, do you think your mom found out about this and beat him up, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think my mom found out somehow. And how uh, old was he? He was an adult at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, he was 20. Jesus. 
So, a confirmed pedophile at this point, right? Yeah. How old was your sister at this point? 12, 11? Uh, I'm 14. Wait, how old is she now? Sorry, hold on. Eight. Oh, God. Oh. Flamethrowers. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. So when you said he stopped messing with you because he had access to women, it's not really the case, right? At 20, he had access to women, right? Yeah, yeah. But he then, and this is what you were backing away from when he was touching you and when you were 11 and you got aroused and you fled, right? You were, you were fleeing this association, yeah. this, right? Which obviously he could not escape or did not escape. Yeah. Oh, God. And what's your contact been like with him over the years? So this is the thing. This is, this is the thing about my family. Everyone pretends like that never happened. Well, you don't even know what happened, right? Because you're only guessing that it was about your younger yeah. sister. And, and so you can see how it destroyed the relationship between me and my younger sister. Because I can't talk about what happened to me. Right. She can't talk about what happened to her. No, I mean, you can. can't. What happens if you do? So I'm afraid that she doesn't want to talk about it. I'm afraid that if I bring it up, then I'm the evil guy that's bringing up things, bringing up things that, are for, that has been forgotten. If you know what I mean. Is she, is she not versed in, you know, I mean, one of the big things in the sort of Western or the European tradition is, I don't know what the case is in, in sort of West Africa, but it's the idea that if there's a crime that the, the ghost will haunt it until the crime is discovered and the criminal is identified, right? That, that there's a very strong, all, all the way back, oh, I mean, through the Greeks, really, of, of this idea that murder will out, that, that evil has to be brought out into the light. The vampires have to come out into the sunlight before they can disintegrate or be disintegrated, right? That this idea that th that things can be forgotten, they can't be forgotten. If you genuinely forgot about something, right? Yeah. If you genuinely forgot about, like uh, a while ago, I was, I, I was um, trying to figure out why on earth I had bought a gift certificate from a very obscure store, right? And I was sitting there going, oh my God, why, why did I, and I asked my wife, why did I spend all this money? And then I was like, oh, that's right. Someone helped me out and this was my thanks. Oh, right. So then I, now because I had forgotten about it and then I remembered about it, I could say, oh, that's, you know, there was no need to keep it a secret because I'd forgotten about it. But when you forgot about, when you, you claim, oh, it's all forgotten, but you can't talk about it, then it's not forgotten. I think I'm afraid that if I, if I say it, she'll just be like, what are you talking about? Okay, so let's say she says that. What then? 
then I'm then I'm sick for thinking about it. <laughs> and then I would have to tell her what happened to me. Okay, so let's say you tell her what happened to you. Then what? She might not believe me. Okay, let's say she doesn't believe you. Then what? Then she has to make a choice. It's me or him. Okay, so let's say she has to make that choice between good and evil. If she, if she chooses evil when the choice is given to her, can't have a relationship. You can't. I mean, you can pretend. You can be in the same room. You can laugh at the same comedy. You can cry at the same sad movie, but you can't have a relationship. Because you have to hide. You have to hide around her just as you did all throughout your childhood. You have to hide everything. Hide what's happening to you. Hide what you think. Hide your questions. Hide your worries. Hide your anxieties. Hide your fear. Hide, 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 hide. And if you hide, every part of you that you hide is like it doesn't exist. It's, it's like an anti-existence. It's like a hole rather than a pillar. It's not just flat, it's an absence. So let's say that she denies, sides with the abusers, calls you crazy, calls you a liar. And then does she go to your half-brother and say, oh, do you know what he's saying about you? And then what does he do? I have no idea. <laughs> Is that an unrealistic possibility? I don't think it's unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, if she's an angry person, as she would be having been violated at the age of eight or for God knows how long before that, right? She's an angry person. Yeah, she so. is. Oh. I mean, I'm I'm trying I'm trying like hell to fight the cliches, man. But you keep serving them up. Angry, volatile black woman. Oh my God. Yeah. All right. So if she is, I mean, she's, she, since she's angry, she's going to want to do damage. And if she's not down with the whole self knowledge thing, then she's going to want to punish you for bringing things up. Now she's going not you're not going to want to beat you up herself. But she could get your half-brother to do it. Yeah. So. Is your mom still in, in Africa? No, she's in the UK now. Oh, because things didn't work out with the guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's Back even on the worse than that, time. It's, it's even worse than that. She got scammed by him. 
Oh, so no. she lost all that money she took over to the UK. That she was actually, in Nigeria. She actually went and got scammed by a Nigerian prince in person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. So she so she knows how to choose him. And now she's getting older, right? She can't get as much male attention and yeah. Messed up so life, now right? she's relying on her kids to fund her and, and the government to, and other people's kids to fund her through the government. Right. 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 Do you have any thoughts as to why you ended up so different from your family? Okay, this is, so this is why, this is partly why I need your help, Stefan, because there's nothing wrong with me. I realize that there's nothing wrong with me. And it's taken me too long to realize that, that there's nothing wrong with me. I'm compassionate. I think about other people. I, I want to be a positive influence on the lives of people that I meet. I want to be open and honest. I care about what is good and what's right and what's evil. And I want to feel love. I want to love other people. I re like I like this is that I've always been like that, but I've always felt weird. I've always felt strange. I've always felt odd around the people I've been around my whole life. Do you think this is why you were looking up the IQ stuff? I think. <sighs> I think the IQ stuff was what so I think so it's, it it began with my with Christianity when I realized that it didn't make sense and then I realized that I was the only one in my family asking questions about it and then I realized that I couldn't ask those questions and then I lost my faith which I probably never had in the first place and then that's and then I embraced science and I was like, okay, let me study physics, let me study mathematics, let me study chemistry, and then and I thought I was a, I wanted to be a scientist, but and then I and then I wanted to understand you know psychology and philosophy, and I just realized I've just I think I just wanted to understand me. <laughs> I think that's all I really wanted. I just wanted to understand my place in my world, in my environment. I don't think it's that I particularly love science or philosophy or psychology. Or I think I've just always been confused by why my experience in life has been the way it has been. Because I mean, I've you, always you could just like be, I'm, I mean, I, 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 you are, right? A super smart guy, right? And maybe that's just not where your family's at. It's only recently I've, I've had the balls to even... <laughs> not the balls the the that I've I've tried to stop 
Like people will say, oh you're, my God, you're so humble. For such a good looking guy, you're so humble. Like, why are you so like, wow, this is like, that's such a great quality. And now I realize that was an insult to my whole life. Wait, what do you mean? Like when people say it like that, what they're saying is that your self-esteem doesn't match what it doesn't meet where it should oh, you're be. Are too humble? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. You you could use this, but you're not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, but did 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 they ever say that about your intellectual gifts, or was it just your your pretty boy nature, your physicality? Um. Yeah. Uh, well. Yes, but they wouldn't say your. They would say some. They would be like. They would say stuff like, like. How would they phrase it? They wouldn't. Obviously, they wouldn't say it in the same way. It was mostly. The, it's mostly women that would say the humble thing about my looks, and you know, I could, you know, like, why are you so such a nice person, basically, when you don't have to be, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> like you could be a but, shit heel because you're good looking, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. With my intelligence, I think, again, I, I just think I haven't been around people that would appreciate, I think people have always known that, I think people have been afraid of my curiosity and the fact that I, I want to be logical and I want to be correct and I and I care about evidence and reason. <laughs> um and so I think they've tried to they've tried to shame me for it. Like, right. Right. like, like, it's not that serious, or, or I oh, stop overcomplicating things, or, are oh, you think too much? <laughs> right. Or everyone's like, oh, you think too much, which they then type on their iPhone, designed entirely by people who think too much. Yeah. When they get on the car, that's kept running by people who think too much, right? And they turn on the tap and the water comes because of the engineers who think too much. It's like, oh man, that's rough. Can I tell you, can I tell you a short story? Yeah, yeah. So my first passion or that I, I, that I identify as a passion was for basketball. Um, I really took that seriously and that was my first taste of success in my life. Um oh, so and, actually, looking and tall. Yeah, yeah. You and um <laughs> just kidding. <go> <laughs> and uh I uh I won a scholarship. Okay, so basically so I I was I decided okay, basketball's my way out. Like this is how I'm going to escape my environment. Um and so, you know, I trained really hard and it was the only, it was the only excuse I had to leave the house. Basically, I'm going to go to play basketball. You know, there was no other reason I could give that would make, that would, I don't know why, but I would always, basketball would be the, my, my way of kind of escaping the house, escaping the family. And so there's an opportunity to get a scholarship, but I couldn't pay but it was like a half scholarship. I couldn't pay the second half because, yeah. Um, and so I had to, and so I had to do some, so I remember going to the local council and saying, okay, I want to go to this. I was 19 and I was like, I want to go, I want to, you know, go on this scholarship, but I know that there's no government program to, that would help me do that because 
they, 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 it just doesn't exist. So what's the, how can I do this? So they said, oh, there's charities. You can go around to charities. And I remember, I, and you have to remember the kind of person I was at 19, like no confidence, no understanding of the world. I didn't, I was like, I'm still confused about everything about life, especially people. I did not understand people at all. No social skills, nothing. Um, but I found, I had the, found the courage to, uh, to walk up and down my local uh, area and I found a charity and I, uh, they, there was a meeting and I had to sit in, in this room full of these old white people, <laughs> um, like 10 of them around this boardroom table. And I was just, and I was on my own and there was no support for my family. And I had to basically put my case forward for why I deserve them to fund my the second half of the scholarship. And, uh, and they gave me, they gave me all the money I needed. Um, and I think that was my first taste of being able to, 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 to impact the world. Well, and I mean, it's a wild thing to think that these, you know, as you say, this, like this old circle of old white people appreciated you more than your entire family had in your entire 19 years. Yeah. Like saw a value in you or saw something positive in you, which I think is blindingly obvious, but they were able to look into your heart and into your mind and say, it's a quality guy, which your family hadn't done at all, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is the part of the story I, I wanted to share with you. So, um, so I go on this scholarship, which means I have to go to, a, I have to live in a different country. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, there was uh, in, uh, the the person that was organizing the scholarship halfway through the year. Apparently, he he committed a crime of some kind, some sort of fraud, and he got fired. And because of that, the scholarship program had to end abruptly. So now there's a lot of us kids from all over the world stuck in this location. And uh, they closed the basketball court. They closed all the facilities. So now we're there. Um, and we're only there for education now. There's no, there's no athletic side of things. So for the first time in my life, I'm away from my family with no distractions. And I was bored, I had nothing to do. And I just thought to myself, how about I just read these textbooks? How about I, I prepare for these exams that are coming up? For the first time in my life, I just thought, how about I just prepare for these exams? I'd, I had enough clarity to think, I've got these exams, how, how about I actually make an effort? I don't know why I never did this before. I don't know why no one ever told me that I could study. Like I'd never studied before ever in my life up until that point. And so I just would spend a few hours a day just reading through these maths textbooks, doing the questions, practicing. And two months later, I achieved the best grades in mathematics that the school had ever seen. <laughs> Great, right, right. And I think that is the moment that my whole reality shattered. And I, and, and I started to build a new, because I realized that there was something about me that my family never told me. Right. I realized that there was something about me 
that wasn't corrupted by my family, something that was mine. It's a very high IQ. Sorry, I meant and... to say a very high NyQuil. It's a very high NyQuil. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. It's a lot of cough medicine. It's a lot of sleep aid. No, very high IQ, right? Like, brilliantly high IQ. I don't take compliments very well. Everyone tells me that. Well, I mean, it's like, it's not a compliment necessarily. You, you, you could use it for evil if you wanted. It's just like saying, hey, you're really tall. Is that a compliment? Well, it's just a statement of fact, right? I mean, I, I, as far as I understand it, it's mostly genetic, right? And so yeah. you just, you got a, you got a great freaking brain. Like, yay, good for you, man. That's great. I mean, again, it's not like a personal compliment, like, look at what you achieved, right? Virtue would be an achievement. High IQ is just, you know, mostly something you're, you're born with, I think. It's like, I don't know, it's like 80% genetic, even in our late teens or whatever, right? So, so you high IQ. And it sounds like you grew up with a bunch of dunderheads. Hey, if it's any consolation, so did I. I mean, in, in the in the neighborhood that I grew up in, it was mostly dunderheads and chowderheads. You know, just people who were volatile and and highly emotional and no no deferral of gratification. And and you know, if they got mad, they screamed, they got angry, they threw things, they you know, they fell in love, they chased people, they you know, like it was all just you know low low brow stuff, right? And yes. I just remember thinking, like, well, pretty sure, pretty sure I'm bouncing out of here as soon as I can. And yeah. you know, it could be. And now I, I did in my sort of mid-teens, I, I found a group of people who were all very smart, and and a lot of them had gone on to be like professors and intellectuals and writers and and all that kind of stuff. All good stuff. But yeah, certainly when I was growing up, well, you know what it's like in in these like these trashy council homes and so on, right? It's mostly just. Yeah. self-destructive people who can barely see beyond their nose, right? Yeah. And you got uh, you got a glorious gift, right? I mean, and it is, the, it is that very intelligence that has given you the horsepower to not reproduce the wrongs that you were done. I mean, I'm not saying that there's nothing to do with you, right? I mean, but it's given you more of a capacity to do that and, and all praise to you for not doing it nonetheless, right? But I think it's... Um, you know, you have to be tall to play basketball, as you know, but you also have to work like hell to be a good basketball player, right? Like Michael Jordan yeah. spends like half his free time practicing shots, or I guess he used to. I don't know what the hell this, his game state is anymore, but, right? Yeah. So so the fact that you're tall, the fact that you've got a high IQ is giving you the potential and you've used it, I think, very well, but, but your life is really frustrating for you, right? Maybe that's because you're just in the wrong environment or you're in the wrong circle or like you... you you know, if, if there's a significant gap in intelligence, it's really hard to communicate. Like you say, oh, my family doesn't talk about anything. Maybe they're talking about everything they're really capable of. You know, like if, if you study all these mathematics and then you go home and you try and talk about all these mathematics, people look at you like you just sprouted a third head or a second head, right? Yeah. And you say, well, my family doesn't talk about anything. It's like, hey, man, they can't talk math. They don't understand it. <laughs> Yeah, and you got the loyalty and and the connection and the history with the people you grew up with, but it doesn't sound to me like that's your future. I mean, you're in this uh, 
goodwill hunting kind of scenario, right? Yeah. You just got to find the other brainiacs and, and let rip intellectually, right? So I, I know that now. <laughs> but I just feel, I feel... Wait, now is it... Now this convo, or now is it now? No, I, no, I mean, at this stage in my life I'm, uh, is when I'm realizing these things, like the last three, four years of my life. Right. Um, before then, it's just so... Stefan, I feel like... I, I feel like I've lived two lives. There's the life before self-knowledge and the life now and i feel like i'm in the adolescence of my second part of my life right right where i'm separating and trying to individuate and what's your um, uh, what's your age group at the moment early 30s early 30s right right yeah i remember i have dated a woman in my early 30s and she was much older not much older she was i don't know six or seven years older and and I knew that she, if she wanted to, she said she wanted to have kids, so we'd have to settle down pretty quickly. And I was just going through a lot of therapy at the time. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just stepping into being myself. I don't know if I can be a dad just yet. And so we didn't end up continuing because I certainly didn't want to burn up her last gasp of fertility uh, in something that wasn't, wasn't going to be. But um, yeah, I mean, I know what, if you, you really, you're coming into your own, like early 30s is a, a pretty good time for it. Yeah. Okay, so what do you want to have achieved by the time you're 35? What's your tick list? Um, I want to have a stable income. I want to be the kind of man that can attract the kind of woman that will allow me to be a great father. <laughs> ah, good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I need to prove that my parents were bad parents. Uh, prove to, to prove that to myself. Okay. All right. I need to do things better than they did. I need to love my children i want to love my wife and protect your kids right the, the one big yeah. thing that was missing for you yeah i want to give them all the tools necessary to be happy right and i feel like that will make me happy i'm i'm sure you're correct about that right okay all right, well, I can tell you how to get there. I can't tell you exactly where there is, but I can tell you how to get there. Okay. So let's use a basketball analogy because, you know, that's up your alley, so to speak, right? So if you want to become a great basketball player and yet the people that you play with are kind of fat and short and slow, will you ever be a great basketball player? No. Well, why not? They're working hard. <laughs> <laughs> because you uh why do you hate the short people man <laughs> they're trying because you need something to aim to up towards you need to be constantly improving you need uh inspiration um you need to be challenged right in a positive way okay so 
more relevant to your family. You can never be great if you do not accept the limitations of those around you. You can never be a great basketball player if you do not accept the limitations of the people around you. If they can't play basketball very well, you have to accept those limitations and move on. Yeah. And right now, you're still hemmed and bound in. You have your glorious potential and you're hemmed and bound in by the utter lack of potential of just about everyone around you. If you want to be great, you have to know who to say the following words to. Sorry, you can't come. I'm going to the NBA. Sorry, short, fat guys I play basketball with on Sunday, you can't come. I'm going to the moon. Sorry, guy who weighs 300 pounds and can't fit into a spacesuit. You can't come. You can't get to the NBA. You can't get to the moon if you think everyone can come with you. To accept the limitations of those around you is one of the most necessary paths to greatness that exist. Think of... I don't know. Who's a famous person you like? Stefan Molini. I, have, I appreciate that. Oh, I don't take compliments either, man. So there. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> but no, it's like, I don't know, some, some I don't know, movie star, sports guy. Like, who's who's a famous person you like? Uh, Michael Jordan. Let's just say Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Okay, fantastic. I just used up my entire basketball analogy. So please, for God's sake, give me something other than <laughs> give me someone other than Michael Jordan. <laughs> Can you give me a can you give a brother a Denzel? Okay, okay. Uh oh my god. I'm not really a fan kind of guy like that. But um okay, uh, let's just say Denzel Washington. Okay, He's Denzel Washington. Now he yeah. is a smart and wise guy in my opinion yeah. and like more charisma than you can fit in an entire village of charismatic people, right? So he's he's yes. the guy, right? Yes. Now, when Denzel Washington decided he wanted to become an actor, I, I don't know what the hell he did. I don't know anything about his life. I assumed he moved from wherever he was to Hollywood. He went on auditions. He, he did all of this stuff, right? Yeah. And he was probably hanging around with a whole bunch of people who either from his hometown weren't going to amount to much or early in the acting days weren't going to amount to much or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Now, he ends up being a top-tier movie star who is truly fantastic at his job. Now, how many of the people he knew along the way could come with him? Almost none. Almost none. Almost none. George Clooney got 20 of his best friends from his early life together, gave him a million bucks each or something. They couldn't come. He's worth half $500 million or something like You know, Sting, when he back when he was Gordon Sumner and... Uh, English teacher at some school, right? He's like, I'm going to be a famous singer-songwriter. And, and, and like, how many of them could come? Maybe he gave a couple of them tickets to his early shows and <laughs> he's gone, right? Yeah. Greatness 
can only be achieved by accepting the limitations of where you start. And I say this from personal experience. I wanted to create this great philosophy show. How many people from my prior life could come along? None. None. And so you have the choice. Do you stay in the limitations of where you started? Or do you just vault the shit out of there? Um, I realize I realize that you're correct. I realize that um, like from watching your, from listening and watching your work, I have come to the place where I know that that is necessary. It's not even a choice anymore. It's funny, right? When you see something clearly, then choice gets thrown out of the window. You can't <laughs> even choose anymore. No, you're right. You're right about that. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Most of free will is just being so clear and everything that the choice is completely obvious. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And just for those of you listening to this a thousand years from the future, uh, Michael Jordan was a basketball player. Denzel Washington was a movie star. You still know me and you still know my friend here on the call. But these other people have been lost to history. Like, who knows, a famous actor from 500 years ago. There's maybe three in the whole world that you'd remember. But anyway, just for the future, just so we can be vainglorious in the moment. But no, that, so that's your thing, right? I mean, and here's the, like, it's not a choice. It's not, like if I had the moment, the moment you want something great, everything around you kind of turns to ash. The reason being, so let's say, oh, I, I really feel like I can do this incredible philosophy show. I've been studying philosophy for 25 years. Man, I am I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to rock and roll. And I'm, this is the right thing for me. It's the right thing for the world. And, and I can do this. And I'm, I'm ready and, and, and hot to try to get it done, right? Now, let's say I really believe that. And I, it turns out I was right. Let's say I really believe that, right? But then I say, oh, but I don't really want to upset my friends and my family by aiming too high, by being too big on myself, by drawing unwanted attention, by whatever it is, right? So let's say that I say, okay, well, I'm going to strangle that little dream of being a philosopher in the crib, and I'm just going to go back to being a software guy, right? How happy am I going to be? Not, not very. You can't. Who will I blame? Yourself. And? <laughs> and everyone around you. Everyone around me who wasn't saying, yeah. for God's sakes, go. Have you ever seen yeah. Goodwill Hunting? Yes, I have, yeah. Okay, so you, of course you have, right? You're in it, right? So so Goodwill yeah. Hunting, what does he say? He says, man, if you show up to this job site tomorrow, I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. You get out of here. You go. Now, that is unrealistic. That's the fantasy that's like Lord of the Rings is more realistic than that moment. Yeah. No, None of the people who were stuck in the underworld are ever going to give you a lift up and say, go, we can't, but you go and you have a great life. They'll be like, oh, he thinks it's so good for us. Oh, he's, you know, he's so messed up. Oh, he's so vain. Oh, he's just so, so high on himself. Everybody says that. About, they're probably saying that about Denzel Washington in his old neighborhood or something. I don't know, right? But and that's, sorry, that's God, sorry. Now, I was going to say, that's the kind of propaganda I grew up with, Stefan. Like, so many things that I know to be true now, I was taught the opposite when I was growing up. So what, what propaganda were you taught? Like, for example, okay, okay. So, for example, I remember, I remember we would, we would watch, um, like, it's, there was, there's a soap opera, soap opera 
called EastEnders. Jesus, is that thing still running? I don't know if it's still running now, but when I was a kid, it was big. It was huge. Yeah, you're a lot younger than me, man. And holy crap, this thing's like immortal. Anyway, go on. (laughs) And um, I remember my mom would watch it and she would comment on what she saw on the show. Kind of like what a good parent would do, right? You're watching a show of your kids. You want to kind of instill your morals into your kids. So you'd comment on certain things that you see and you'd say, isn't that bad? Isn't that good? You know, that kind of thing, right? And I remember she would make jokes about the fact that um, the kids would call their parents by their first name. Right. Like, because sometimes the kids would say, like, uh, like, you know, I don't know, like, Sally, you know, and, and that would and they'd be referring to their mum, for example. And in, in our culture, like, that's just so taboo. I mean, you just don't do that. Like, I've never called my mum by her name. Like, right. even when I, even when people ask me, what's your mom's name? It feels weird me saying her name. Like, right, right. Right. That's how, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and Beelzebub yeah. doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of culture I grew up in. Um, anyway, so, so she would make comments, like, she would make comments like that. She would, uh, just comments, just, she would say things to kind of, uh, degrade the European culture and to elevate what I would call the West African culture. Sure. Right. Now, but now I'm now I, I now I don't want to call it the West African culture because I'll just call it the culture in my family. Right. 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 Because <laughs> obviously. We're talking well, West here. Africa keeps changing and growing. Your family's kind of sliced off this little bit of it from like 30 40 years ago that doesn't change and yeah right. I all that right yeah um so and and so so i i grew up thinking like oh wow these europeans they're so immoral you know um they don't respect their elders you know they don't look after their their grandparents they don't you've probably heard stuff like this yeah yeah of course of course right yeah, yeah you know we were so we were so bad at respecting our our parents that our parents who believed in slavery, we said, nah, we're ending slavery. <laughs> First time ever in the history of the world, Western Europeans are ending slavery and we're going to do it not just at home, but around the world. So, right. you know, it's kind of a good thing that we didn't listen to our elders because our elders had some really bad ideas. Exactly. It's called progress, now- isn't it? Just not listening to your elders and thinking that they're automatically right. Exactly. Which is the problem with Africa right now that the elders are suppressing the talent from the youth. Right. And it's right. not a meritocracy. Like, like Europe is more, Europe is more a meritocracy than Africa by far. Right. Um, and that's one of the biggest problems <laughs> um, in Africa. But again, you would never hear these arguments because those are high, those are arguments that require thoughts. <laughs> um, well, and, and so, you know, this is the yeah. other thing too, right? I mean, it's, it's the thing that drives a lot of people from, the uk and and not just whites but just about everyone it's like okay so you you, you'll you come here and and you're happy to take the taxpayers money and then you just sit around and insult the culture yeah so 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 and this is why i say like i feel like i'm living to i've uh, this is i have the life before self-knowledge and the the life now yeah and And there's no life before self-knowledge there's no life before self-knowledge there's just existence that's it yeah right 
Right. And and so now, I mean, you have the choice. I mean, look, you can't go back. Right? You you can't. You can't go back to a lack of self-knowledge. You can't undo knowledge that you've already achieved. Or maybe Alzheimer's or something, but no, no, no practical way you can go back. So, like, once the idea comes in your head, right? Like, for me, it's like, oh, I want to do a philosophy show. Damn, I could be great at this. Oh, I really am good at this. Man, I'm going to do more of it. Okay, so I can't unring that bell. I can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Like, it's go forward or... Or what? what? What what choice do you have? You can't go back and undo everything. It's like trying to crawl up into your mother's womb again. You just split her in two, right? I mean, it doesn't work. You're bigger than she is now, right? I mean, yeah. you gotta. It's it's onward, onward or nothing. So um, so since I've since I've accepted that truth, um, I've been slowly experimenting with my family so experimenting with the truth so and i think this happened about the first experiment was about four years ago where i mentioned to my father that sorry there was a conversation going on my father and my mother were in the same place which is which doesn't happen frequently i i i'll probably see my father twice a year um maybe because uh there will be like a family function and he will show up a family event and he will show up um anyway um so i i so i was in the room it was myself one of my older siblings my older sister um and my mother and my father and we were talking about something to do with family and the past or something and then i mentioned my, my, my dad is quite an arrogant man in my opinion anyway but um i i then mentioned that that how can you speak like that you don't even know what's happened to your children that's what i said to him and then he and then he goes and he goes he goes what do you mean kind of like in a defiant way like an aggressive way in an aggressive way and i and i was like and i and i was like and i was like i was like you don't know what's happened to your kids you don't even know what's happened to your kids and he goes he goes what's happened to you then what's happened to you he goes that then i then i said i said you don't even know what happened to me in nigeria that's what i said to him and uh and then i and then i said i'm try i i want to say this accurately i then said i then said i was abused in nigeria and then he said he said what abuse what abuse who abused you then who abused you then and the moment I saw him react that way, I just recoiled internally. And I said, I said, I can't believe, and, and I said, I said, I can't believe, I can't remember what I said, but basically I verbalized something that met, that symbolized this, this uh, thought, which was, I can't believe this is how you're reacting to me saying that I've been abused. Now that happened four years ago. Right. 
Now, early now the summer of this year, I spoke to my dad about my dissatisfaction with how the family is, our lack of intimacy, because the the so basically over the last three to four years, there's been a series of traumatic events that's happened to members of my family, and I believe, and I I now know that these are the fruits of seeds that were sown in our childhood, right? Um, and again, and the only reason I can make these connections is because of your work, Stefan. So I'm, I'm extremely well, grateful. You. Your work has changed my life already. And, um, and so I confronted, my, I confronted my dad in a peaceful manner. It was over the phone. And I was like, this is what I see. I think there's dysfunction in our family. And these are the results of this dysfunction in our family. Of course, he denied everything. He said he doesn't see anything of what I see. And I'm just, uh, that I'm the, and then he uh, uh, basically just pretended like everything I was saying didn't make sense to him. And then I said, and then I said to him uh, that I then said, sorry, I then said, I then um, he then said he then said to me that if any if anyone's dysfunctional it's you that's what he said to me. Okay, so hang on, let me because I know we've been talking for over two hours here, right? So I got to make sure that yeah. we we get to the to the meat of the matter. Why yeah. are we talking about your family of origin? Like four years ago, this and then aren't you okay, just yelling? I'm talking... just yelling at the short guys to jump higher. So the reason I'm talk the reason I'm talking about it is because. I think, like, I had a series of interactions, like, so, so far, so everything, so a lot of the time when, when, I guess I had to have it rubbed in my face, basically, that's the point I'm trying to make. No, this that, is, a, no, this is a form of self-attack. You're putting yourself in a situation of rejection over and over again. Of course, you're yes. going to be rejected. Yes. Your father abandoned his children. Your father married a woman who then abandoned you at the age of 15 to go chase a guy in Nigeria who has magic voodoo soap to keep demons out of her children. Right? Yeah. So you're asking for what? Compassion and love and, and virtue and honesty and self-knowledge from a guy who abandoned his children and has never apologized for it? Like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? This not. This not. This not going to work. And you know it's not going to work. You can't make him into the father you should have had. There's no amount of self knowledge that is going to transfer like smoke or COVID in a room to him, because you have a clean conscience and he does not, and you can't transfer. Your clean conscience to him. For you, self-knowledge is a great journey because you're smart and deep and wise. For him, self-knowledge is rooting around in a garbage heap full of rats with rabies. You know this. Yeah, I do. You know that you're putting yourself in a situation, and this is why you're not doing it with your sister because it's going to get rejected and going to get attacked, put in danger ostracized and if the progress has been before years ago I said this and last year I said this 
and I'm in my early 30s, you don't have all the time in the world to pursue these half-decade-long projects with your family that lead precisely nowhere. You get a quality woman, smart, wise, deep, she comes to your family, what's she going to say? Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> you know exactly what she's going to say. Hey, man, you're great. I I can't have these as my in-laws for the next 40 years. I can't do it. Sorry, man. Like, great. Good luck on you. But no, no, can't do it. No, thanks. I'm afraid. Of? Of not having a family. Right. Right. But it's a choice, man. If you want the family, you if you want to have the family that you want to have, if you want to get that, can you have that with your family and of origin at the same time? No. And I'm sorry for that. I really am. I think it's terrible. But they're the past. Your family to come is the future. You might have to let go of one to get the other. In fact, it seems almost inescapable that that may have to be the case. I mean, if your dad in his, what, 50s or 60s or whatever is like, Oh yeah, well, well, well. If anyone's messed up, it's you, right? I mean, that's that's so primitive. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I just mean mentally, right? Like it's a very, yeah, um, yeah. I it's know a very mean. undeveloped state of mind. It's a very unself-critical state of mind, right? Yeah. Be like you know, if I spent all day on the computer. And my my daughter was like, Dad, I feel like you're ignoring me. And I said, hey, if anyone's ignoring anyone, it's you're ignoring me. Like, Come on. Can I ask you a question, Stefan? <laughs> of course you just did, but go ahead. Um, why would the good woman want to be with a man that has no family? Do you not think that a good woman has had her own struggles with family? Do you not think that you're going to find a sister in arms, so to speak? She's not going to come from a perfect state and dip down to where you are. She's going to have had her own struggles with family. I mean, particularly if you end up, what is it, like 80, I think close to 90% of, of black men end up marrying black women, right? So if you have, yeah. let's say, you meet a, a, the wonderful black woman of your dreams, right? And you're like, hey, you know, man, I've had some struggles with a family that's kind of limiting. What's she going to say? So, uh, yeah. Same. Yeah. Right? But if she has worked to free herself, if this has the case, right? If she has worked to free herself from a dysfunctional family, and that 
may not mean total separation. It could be in any number of things. But let's say she's, she's worked to create some distance from a dysfunctional family. And that's taken her five years or ten years or whatever, right? And then she comes to you. And you're still in there? Oof. She's going to yeah, be she's... like, man, I just, I just got out. Yeah. I can't go back in. Yeah. Okay. And you can say, of course, I mean, you can say, and I think it's a true thing to say, you say, listen, I want, I was abused as a child. I want so much better for my kids. And I can't have the abusers in my kid's life. I just can't. I won't. I won't. I'm breaking this. I'm stopping this cycle. I'm breaking this cycle. Now, somebody who loves children and wants to do best by them is going to respect that, aren't they? Yes. I couldn't be the father I am if I had my parents in my life, like up in my business, so to speak. What do they say? All up in my grill or whatever it is they say. I don't know, right? But, but I couldn't. Like, I just couldn't do it. And everything is for the kids, right? You know, it's everyone says that, oh, we do anything for our kids. Oh, everything is for the kids. But if you really live like that, it's like, hey, man, if, if you're good to my daughter, you are welcome in my life. Hmm. If you're not good to her, I don't even mean like if you're mean. Like, you know, let's say, I don't know, you're, you're big buddies with her and then you just kind of fade away and never say anything. It's like, well, then you're not really very welcome in my life. And if you're mean to her, oh, <laughs> don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. <laughs> Everything for the kids, right? Yeah. We got, we got to, we got to stop this stuff. Maybe uh, we got to stop this whole generational stuff going back in your family for 10,000 years, going back in my family for 10,000 years. Like somebody's got to do that fucking Spider-Man with the, <laughs> with the subway train. <laughs> Right, just stop it. We just got to yeah. stop this stuff. But I'm, I'm sorry for the people who are the generation that it costs, in a sense, the most. Like, I'm sorry. I really am. You know, like in, in before the modern world, before maybe the late 20th century, I would have had to hang out with my mother and my father for the rest of my or their natural days, right? And that's what, I mean, that's why everybody treats their children so badly. Not everyone. That's why a lot of that's why a lot of people treat their children so badly. Because they just there's no free market in the family. They're like government workers. They don't have to provide a good service because they can't be fired. I'm for the free market in the family. I'm privatizing the family, man. I'm for the free market in the family. If we don't get the free market in the family, we don't get it anywhere else. And these people were just, you're, you're at someone's house, and these are the people who sit down for dinner, and you're breaking bread with them, and you get to evaluate them for a couple of hours over a dinner party. Are you going to be like, hey, I'd love to spend more time with you. You people are so inspiring and such great conversationalists and so wise. You're going to enrich my life. I can't imagine, based on what I've heard, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine that that would be your first impulse. You're not wrong. <laughs>
So future of the past, man. Future of the past. It's always the choice, right? Yeah. And what do your kids want you to choose? Your kids to be. Kids down the road. Yeah. They want me to choose them and to set a good example yeah. and to protect them. And you have to protect your children from whoever diminishes you as well, as a father, as a mother too, man to man, right? you got to be an authority figure. And you can't be around people who diminish you and put you down and roll their eyes at you and undermine you, and right? Yeah. I mean, it's just a memory that sort of popped into my head. I think she was from West Africa for sure, but when I worked in the daycare, there was this black woman that I worked with who would constantly put me down in front of the kids that I was supposed to be having an authority figure relationship with, right? And, you know, I asked her pretty nicely and pretty politely. I was like, I don't know, 16 or 17, so I wasn't like Mr. Assertive Bulldozer guy, right? But eventually I just had to really snap at her and say, stop putting me down in front of these kids. Because she was just chipping away and diminishing, chipping away and, and loud, right? The kids in the end of the playground could hear, right? I just couldn't do it. I couldn't have it. Because I couldn't do the job. I already had the challenge of being younger. And I just, I couldn't, it was bad for the kids to see a close to adult male being put down in this kind of way. They needed to see something, someone stand up, right? And the black kids who were in my class were just completely jaw dropped. I remember them like, (laughs) what are you doing? You're a boy, and she's an adult black female from West Africa. Are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) But to her credit, she backed down. But Uh, I just remember that moment. I just remember the, the, I don't know, like it was was at least, I think it was at least half the the kids in the class were black, right? And and mostly great kids, right? But I just remember them. I remember one of them just hanging off the, uh, uh, he was hanging off, um, the top of the slide and he literally was hanging one hand and he turned his eyes and, oh. <laughs> well you know right I don't have to tell you like you see some some little white boy standing going toe to toe with the matriarch of the West Africa <laughs> playground <laughs> it was quite something it was quite something and I was fairly fierce and, and after being nice right because I'm nice until I'm not it's a kind of a white guy thing right but um, yeah. uh, and and uh yeah, I just remember that. Just it just reminded me of, of that. Just I haven't thought of that in I don't know forever, but I just remember that moment where I just had to really put my foot down with her, and just how <laughs> how shocking it was. Because so most of the kids a poor neighborhood, right? Most of the black kids there, and most of the white kids too, um, were without dads, and so you know they were kind of attached to me, and I did feel a kind of responsibility to to you know say that it's okay to stand up to, you know, even if you don't win, it's good to stand up, right? So. And, and yeah, so I did win that one. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's, it's your future kids. You you can't be, you know, like, if, if your father diminishes you and, and your mother diminishes you and undermines your authority and, and makes you feel insecure and makes you feel at odds with yourself, you can't, you can't have, you have to protect your kids from the other people's effect on you as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, that's most of what I wanted to get get across and sort of mulling over what what you what you sent how how's how's the convo for you um it's been really really helpful um especially when you spoke about um 
my older brother and um, what his experience must be like. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, like being good, it does make it, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad as a person. It doesn't matter if you're a moral man or not. Oh, the speech about matter. just being good suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying I was helpful about an hour three quarters ago. The rest of it's just been total filler. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm saying that that's that's what made the that's that was uh, something I'd never even thought about. You know, like I couldn't see that myself. I wouldn't right. be able to to have seen that myself. Um, yeah, I mean, so um, when we're good, we suffer, but it passes. When you're bad, you suffer, and it just escalates. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that was helpful. Will you will you keep me posted about how things are going? I will. I will. Will you accept my deep and humble thanks for a great, great conversation? I really appreciate your openness and honesty in these areas. It was a great, great chat. Thank you, Stefan, for the time, and thank you for your work. Um, I just have to say on behalf of all the other people that won't send an email and won't get have won't find the strength to have this kind of conversation with you you make a difference every single time you do these calling shows uh, and yeah i just i'm just i'm just grateful that you have the courage to be the man that you are so thank you i appreciate that thank you so much and uh, have a great night all right take care bye